Amen. If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're in Genesis 2 as we take our, our next step in this series. It's really going to carry us through the entire, uh, this entire first book of the Bible. It's, it's pretty easy to find there, Genesis. You should be around page 1 or 2. Uh, this morning. So uh, Genesis is easy to find. It literally just means the beginning. So I would ask you to stand with me now as we set our hearts to hear the Word of God together. We just sang about it. That God's Word is our light. Uh, we stand because it is the one, it is the Lord right now who is speaking to us. This is Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you know us, you know our hearts, and you know our minds. Lord, you know that we are not ready this morning that we're not, that we're not prepared to hear from you. You know that our, our hearts and minds are distracted and you know, you know that we drift to a thousand other places even while we're just here in this room. But Lord, even though we're not ready, you are. And even though we aren't, we aren't able to hear, you are able to make us able to hear. And so we pray that you would do that today. I pray that for my own life and for, for my own heart this morning that you would that you would rouse us out of sort of the, the comfort and the slumber of our everyday life. Allow us to just be here and be present right now. Like for me, for, for every soul in this room, just let us be here and nowhere else. Would you do that for us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
uh, one of the, the really cool things about what God has done here at Rivercrest over the last couple of years is that he's, he has blessed the families of this uh, church with a number of new babies, right? And it's always exciting uh, when God brings a new life into the world, but, when it, but it's an extra blessing uh, when God brings new life into the church because we all, all of us, get to, get to participate in that. We get to see it happen. We get to watch as the little ones grow and start to crawl and then start to walk. It's, it's like it's one of the genuine privileges of being close to and part of the local church. It's that we get to genuinely participate in the nurture and care of these, of these little image bearers of God. And the kids have, and the, the, the end result is just that the kids have all these sort of surrogate spiritual aunts and uncles and grandparents and some of them have cousins they kind of wish weren't around as much. But anyway, they, 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 have, they have all of this in the family of faith. Well, one of the other things that we've had, and this is pretty normal uh, for a, a church that has a lot of younger adults, and I really noticed it this past December, is that as a gathering of God's people, our families have added quite a few new dogs to the church. Um, I mean, like back around Christmas, it seemed like every day Laurie was going, did you see the puppy? Did you see the new puppy that so-and-so got? I'm like, just don't show the kids, man. Just don't. Under no circumstances are they allowed to see that, that dog at all, right? But that's kind of what happens, and it's fun. Um, and, and it's kind of like, we kind of joke, it's sort of like baby training, right? It's like baby training program. You, you get a puppy, see if you can keep it alive for a while. And if you can, that's good. And, and maybe you'll think about have a baby, all right? But I wanna, I'm just going to spoil it to you, spoil it for you. Uh, it's not the same at all, um, 100% not the same. There's one thing that they do have in common, though, both a new baby and a new puppy. It, it's a, and it's a question you better be prepared to answer pretty early on because your friends are going to ask it. And it's just this. What's its name? Now, if it's a baby, you need to say his or her for the record. If you come into the nursery and say, what's its name? You're going to get a mean face from mama. But what's its name? That's where it starts. Okay, naming, right? The idea of naming or choosing a name, that's a big deal. I mean, it's a big, permanent deal. And we, and we see that in this passage. We're going to see it later on when we finish out Genesis 2 when Adam names the animals. But before that, even before we get to Adam naming the animals, right here in verse 4, we see another name introduced. Look at that with me in verse 4. In fact, we see a transition in the names right there in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 said this. Here's verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so that closes out the, the, the story of creation, the creation account. Sometimes people refer to Genesis 2 as like a second creation account, but that's really, that's really not the case. That's not a fair treatment of Genesis 2. But in Genesis 1, the name of God is consistently the name Elohim. That's what it is. Elohim is the name. Uh, it's, it, it's the one true God over and above all other false gods, above all other imposters. That's the idea. This name of Elohim is one God. And that's what it's constantly been. But here in verse 4, look back at verse 4, we see a new name. And it tells us something about Genesis 2. 
Because here in Genesis 2, Moses refers to God as, do you see it? The Lord God. It's subtle, all right? It's a subtle little thing, but it's really, really important. We need to pick up on that. As you're reading your Bible, if you're doing the Bible reading plan, you've been going through Genesis, you need to pick up on these little nuances that are in there because that can kind of pass over us, but that would not have passed over anybody reading this in ancient Hebrew. And so the first question that we're given here today as Genesis says that there are, there, these, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, that's the name, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So our question this morning is what is in a name? What's in a name? You know, last week what we said uh, was the primary purpose of Genesis isn't to tell us uh, every detail about the origin of the cosmos, right? What our shorter catechism teaches and what I'm pretty comfortable affirming is that the work of creation, here, here it is. This, is, this is creation. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Now, that's, a, that's a kind of a mouthful, but that's what I would say, that God has created all things of nothing by the word of his power in the span of six days and all very good. I want to be really clear that God doesn't just guide and steer creation. All right, he wasn't, he wasn't just out there sort of surfing through the various galaxies looking for one that might work for him. That's not what, that's not what God, he went flying through the cosmos going, here's a nice, oh, Milky Way looks pretty good. Let's settle there. And he didn't like see earth and think that's a nice piece of land. I'll stake my claim on it and see if I can't make some order out of that chaos. I think sometimes that's the way we tend to treat it, that God just sort of picked earth because it was convenient, because it was nice property. But that's not what happened. Okay, he didn't just dress it all up. He he created it. Like we talked with the kids, he created, he spoke it into existence out of nothing. And so what that means on a base level is that everything is his. I know that's not a profound statement. You're like that's nothing I've never. But but if we don't understand the weight of that, we won't understand who God is. That all of this is his. And he alone holds claim over all that there is. So what we talked about last week was his omnipotence and his transcendence. It's that God's all-powerful. He transcends everything. He's not part of creation. He speaks creation. That's what's in the name Elohim. That's sort of bottled up in that name. But there's a different focus here in chapter 2. You see here in chapter 2, the focus isn't so much on his, on his uh, omnipotence and transcendence, but it's on his eminence and his intimacy. It's a focus here in Genesis 2 on God's nearness to his creation. Yes, he's the one who spoke it into, uh, in, into being in the past, but he's also the one who holds it together here in the present. And the name here reflects that. And this presence, his presence here reflects that. So, so what that means is that the earth, the here that is creation, is a sacred setting. That all of the earth is a sacred setting. That's our first point for the day, is that creation is a sacred setting. It's that all the heavens and all of the earth are set apart, that they are dedicated to God. And in his claim over creation, he appoints the man to steward his creation, to steward his possession for him. 
And he doesn't do it through a series of random selections, but he forms the man intimately. Look there at verse 7. After talking about the uncultivated uh, creation and there being nobody to work the ground, here's what we're told in 7. We're told that the Lord God, there's that name, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so, so, so just like the rest of creation... Man is not the result of some sort of spontaneous generation, all right, or even some evolutionary development. That's not what happened. It's that the Lord God, there's that name, the Lord God formed the man, and the image is that of a potter working with clay. Listen, I remember, I remember in seventh grade, I'm one of those people who remembers weird stuff. I remember in seventh grade making a little teapot. It was like the whole school got to go into the kiln, right, and make a teapot. So we bought the clay and we molded it and we shaped it and then they cooked it up and it hardened and we got to take it home. And I was so proud. I, rem- I mean, I know that sounds like as a middle schooler. Yeah, as a middle schooler, I was so proud of this little, te- literally that big, all right, this little teapot that I had made. I'm not a creative person at all, so maybe that's why that was. Like, I could never draw anything to save my life, but I could make this little teapot. And as I held that thing, uh, I knew that it was the result of my little hands, right, that I had formed it, that I had shaped it, that I had molded it, and I knew every detail of it. I knew every detail of that thing. I knew the struggle of putting the, like the hard part was putting the handle on there. You know, how do you get the handle to be on there and to stick? And, and I knew how difficult it was to get the sides even on the thing and to make it look right and to get the thickness of the walls just right. I knew where when I was forming it, it had slipped out of my hand and folded and gotten all jacked up and I had to reshape it so that it would balance. Like I knew that. I remembered all of that. By the way, I dropped that thing walking down the driveway to my house and cracked the handle off of it day one. My mom still has it on her counter in the kitchen with it glued back on. Anyway, you didn't ask for that, but that's just a little detail to tell you how clumsy I am. I knew it had to be balanced. I knew every little intricate piece of that little teeny pot. You see, that's the image we have here of God. There's an intimacy to the things that you work with, to the things that you work with your hands. We know the corners. We know the hard-to-reach places and the delicate places. This is the nearness of God to his creation. And specifically, this is the nearness of God to you, to his image bearers. God breathed life into Adam's nostrils. He literally breathes, okay? Blew, that's the word, he blew. You can imagine him like forcefully blowing air into his lungs. Think CPR, right? He's just down there blowing breath into this dead lump of clay and turning it into a man. This is just this animating breath of God that brings the man to life. It's the exact opposite of the dragon breath your kid hits you with in the morning, right? God breathed life. He breathed life into the man's nostrils. That's a, that's a graphic and intimate thing. Because what that means, what that means is that life is sacred. It means that human life is a sacred thing to be protected. And we see an expression of this. We see an expression of this. Look at that. As he, as, as he doesn't just send the man out into the wilderness. Right? He didn't form him and go, good luck. Hope it works out for you. I've breathed life into you now. I hope, hope you survive. 
That's not what he does. He doesn't do that. But as a good father, look at verse 8. It tells us that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he did what? You see it? He put the man whom he had formed, that God put him there. So God doesn't just form him, but he also provides for him. It's that in his nearness, God personally prepares a place for his image bearer. And he doesn't just put down the down payment, right? He moves him into the house. And so you didn't just, here's what that means. It means that you didn't just happen to be born. That you, you aren't just a spontaneous result of some biological process, but that you are a sacred, living creature formed by God, knitted together by God for a purpose. And listen, I know that sometimes it's hard to believe that. I mean, if I can just be straight with you, sometimes it's hard for me to believe that. That God cares about who I am and what I'm doing because sometimes it just feels like an ordinary Tuesday and I don't feel like I've got a whole lot of purpose. But the good news for us is that life is far less about what we feel and always about what God says is true. And this purpose isn't established by man's awesome ability, but by God's sovereign decree. Look there at verse 15. We're given a glimpse of the garden. We're given a glimpse of the garden. And listen, it's not given as a metaphor, by the way. You'll hear that. This is a metaphor for life. That's, that's not, it's, it's given as a literal place. You don't name rivers Okay, unless you're trying to be very, very specific. This is a geographical location as a real place. And the Garden of Eden is one of those, it's one of the really great mysteries of human history, to be honest with you. Like people speculate quite a bit about the the Garden of Eden. I read a story uh, this week uh, about when Christopher Columbus, when Christopher Columbus in 1498 passed the mouth of the Orinoco River. If you don't know where that is, you're okay. It's, it's, down in Venezuela. Anyway, he passed the mouth of the Orinoco River and the way he described it, the way he wrote back to Spain, to the king to describe, he's like, I think I found Eden. That's the way he described it. Now, that's nowhere near the Tigris or the Euphrates River, right? We know South America is not in, we're in the Persian Gulf. Anyway, but in verse 15, we're introduced to man's purpose in the sacred setting of creation. We're told there, look at that, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let me read that one more time. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Listen to me. To, that little word, T-O, to, is a purpose word. To is a purpose word. Word. It could be translated to say in order that, but it's a it's two is a design and purpose word. And it's important that we recognize that work existed, that work existed on the earth before sin had infected the earth. I like the way Richard Belcher said it. He said, Work is something that is beneficial to human beings and fulfilling the calling that God has given to them. Work is something that is beneficial to human beings in fulfilling the calling God has given to them. So the implication here for you and I is that the work is not just good for us, but that it's beneficial for creation. It's that, it's that here, even in that sacred setting, even in, even in that garden, God has given mankind a sacred calling. And it's really a two-way street. You see, in order to make the earth properly serve the man, 
the man is tasked to serve the earth. He's tasked to cultivate and guard. That's the way those words could be translated. He's tasked to work and to keep the earth. That's our mandate from God. That's what we're given from God. So yes, we should care about this world because God cares about this world. And we're not alone in that. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. It's the first time we hear that. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I just want to be straight with you. That's a pretty awesome first date. That's a good first date right there. If God himself introduces you to your spouse and she's beautiful and naked and there's no sin and it's perfect, that's a good way to start the relationship. We could do a whole lot of sermons on that verse right there on being naked and unashamed, but none of us have ever experienced anything like what they had in that garden. Naked and unashamed. That's an awesome first date. And we should notice that all of this is completely of God, okay? So I'm not telling, if you're in here and you're like, it's starting to still in that dating phase and you're like, I don't know, I'm going to give it a shot. That's not the way to start it, all right? <laughs> this is all God's doing, all right? Adam seems blissfully unaware that he's lacking in anything. We have no indication, we're given no indication that Adam voiced any complaint, that he even expressed any interest, that he was even looking, all right? It's God doing this. And just as Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, Eve was formed out of some borrowed material. The Puritan Matthew Henry pointed out that as Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's a pretty nice picture of God's work in creating and what the one flesh idea means in Scripture. There was something altogether different about Adam and Eve from the rest of creation. And there's really an immediate awareness of that. As soon as he spotted her, there's a recognition that takes place. He sees her coming to him and it spills over into the first recorded words that were spoken by man. And it's not just a saying. Adam sees her and he sings a song. Here in this sacred setting, as man is given this sacred calling, he receives this sacred gift and he sings a sacred song. It's right there in verse 23. And we really need to sort of visualize this moment as the woman came into the frame. God God brings her to him. It says that the Lord, God brought her to him. 
And Adam saw her. And she was beautiful to his eyes. And all he can do, listen, all he can do in that moment is to sing. All he can do is sing. And here's what he sings. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. You won't believe me, but I practiced trying to sing that in some way to y'all like three times and I just don't have it in me. So I'm reading it there, but Adam's saying that stuff, man. And that was the first love song that was ever sung on the earth. And what happened in that moment, okay, was Adam seized the woman. I know you're like, that's not a real romantic song. Anyway, it would have been, okay? It would have been really romantic. What happens in that moment, all right, is that the eyes of the man, I want you to see him. He had no idea that he was missing anything. He sees her, and his eyes are open to see a need that he never knew that he had. He saw for the first time What God had said was not good. He saw and he understood that it was not good for him to be alone. So what we get here is this, we get here this image of God the Father, right? (laughs) Looking down on his child, seeing him in the world that he created, and he's recognizing, here's what God the Father is recognizing this need that the man had. He sees that there is something lacking. The image that comes to my mind is that of a parent walking into the room at night to check on their little baby. And they see them, like they see the little baby secure in the safety of the nursery room and they're at rest in the comfort of their little crib, but they're uncovered, right? This happens. If you, you know, babies wiggle, man, and you can tie the best knot on that little baby and it's gonna figure out a way to get its little arm out. And they're uncovered because the blanket has fallen off of them. And the parent knows, okay, the parent knows, the mama or the daddy knows that the little child needs the blanket to keep them warm through the night. This is sort of the picture we see of God at work around and for his own kids. Like Adam, they are comfortable Like Adam, they're happy, sort of blissfully unaware of their need. The baby's still asleep, but God sees it. God God sees it because he sees us. He sees us as he saw Adam in the garden. He sees us in our need. He sees us when the blanket has fallen off. He sees us, he sees it even when we don't see it ourselves, when we are totally unaware. He sees our need. But for us, it's different. Remember, at this point in the garden, there was no sin. The earth was not fractured from its creator. And so our need is different. Yours and mine, our need is different than Adam and Eve. See, in a Genesis 3 world, like we find ourselves in today, in a Genesis 3 world, and I know we haven't gotten there yet, but we will, after the brokenness of sin has entered into the world, we're going to see the truth that we are not really very safe in the nursery. We're going to see that you and I, that our first parents moved us out of the garden, out into the wilderness. We're going to see the slide of humanity farther and farther away from our creator. We're going to see humanity become so 
we're going to see sin become so natural for humanity that we don't even recognize it anymore. It's all just camouflaged. The life of sin becomes our natural habitat. It's camouflaged in what we call life, and we're going to be comfortable with it because for us, sin well, sin's what we call normal. And so just like Adam, what God does for us is he comes to us in our not good. He walks into the room. He comes into the darkness. Can you see him doing that? He comes into the darkness. He comes into the sacred setting that he has created. And he sees us. like He sees you and I exposed to the fallen nature of the world. He sees us in the mess of sin. And he doesn't shout for us to clean ourselves. Like I never walked into the nursery and see my kid there with a wet diaper and tell him to clean it himself. Look what you've done, idiot. You were suped to be the one, right? No, I've never done, never did that. And some parents, they walk into the nursery and find way worse than just a dirty diaper. I mean, kids, you're gross, right? You think your dog's bad. You think that puppy's bad. You just wait. I never walked in there. No parent, no loving father would ever walk in there and tell the kid, you need to get this together. I'll be back in a little bit. And we leave them in a little cage, right? So they can't get it everywhere. That's what we do. He sees us in that, in our need. Even when we have gone off the rails, even when we have gone way off course, he still sees us. He sees our need. But for us, it is different. It's different. And so God sees us in that not good. He walks into the room. He comes into the darkness. He comes into the sacred setting. And he sees us in that fallen nature. And he doesn't run away. He doesn't tell us to be brave and strong and smart enough to escape, but he comes to us and he picks us up and he carries us out. That's what Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to do. It tells us that's why he came into the world to begin with, that the Son of Man came not to seek and to save, came to seek and to save the lost. Period. That's the end of that sentence. It doesn't say save the lost who are really nice. It doesn't say he came to seek and save the lost who are really pretty. He didn't come to seek and to save the lost who are going to make a bunch of money. He didn't come to seek and to save the lost who are going to be super successful. He didn't come to seek and save the black. He didn't come to seek and save the white. He didn't come to seek and save the brown. He came to seek and save the lost. Period. It's the end of the sentence. He comes to us in our blindness. He comes to us in our deafness. He comes to us in our coldness and he opens our eyes to see and he unstops our ears to hear and he awakens our souls through the power of his own spirit at work. Still breathing into you and I, still breathing into you and I, the breath of his own life. He comes and he shows us our need so that we can understand that he has come to fulfill it. You see, we can't understand Jesus as our Savior unless we first understand our need for a Savior. Just as Eve walked into the garden that day with Adam and understood his, and Adam understood his need, it's the same thing for us with Jesus. This is what happens when he comes into our lives, is that when we see him, we understand our lack. We see our deficiency. We see why the things that we had always hoped and believed would satisfy the longing of our hearts have always left us wanting just a little bit more. We see that peace and hope and joy and love and fulfillment and renewal are all possible 
because of the grace of our Heavenly Father that's expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. I know that's a long, long sentence. The truth is that we have to understand that our, we have to understand our own nakedness before we can ever comprehend the glory of the robe of righteousness that Jesus covers us with, that he offers us at the cross. Genesis 2 gives us a picture of the gospel. We see a picture of a loving God coming down to care for the oblivious man. We see ourselves. We see the God who saves. And the response should be that just like what Adam did. When you see something so beautiful that you can't comprehend it, all you can do is sing. And we sing his song, that sacred song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have, from the very beginning, cared for your creation. That you've demonstrated that in real space and in real time. That you have provided for, that you have nurtured, that you have kept. Lord, you call us to work and keep, and that's exactly what you've done for us. That you've cultivated our lives, that you've guarded us Lord, help us to sing your song this week. There's a lot of other tunes playing out there, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to filter those out. May we be a people who sing, perhaps even shout, of the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All the redeemed washed by his blood, come and rejoice in his great love. Stand and sing with us, all creatures of our God and King.